It's Thursday, December the 16th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. And while I can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I am not the only fellow in podcasting these days at the Hoover Institution. And if you don't believe me, I encourage you to go to the Hoover website, which is hoover.org, and check out the many podcasts we have to offer. And you can subscribe to any or all that you want to. It's very simple. Just go onto our website, click where it says publications, and then go onto the tab that says podcast. And you're on your own after that. As I said, you can subscribe to any or all of them and also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcast to you every month. Hoover podcast is one part of IGS defining a free society. My guests today are David Brady and Douglas Rivers. Dave Brady is a senior fellow emeritus here at the Hoover Institution and a longtime political scientist and lecturer at both Stanford University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers, likewise, is a Hoover Institution senior fellow and a Stanford University political scientist. He's also the chief scientist at Yuga PLC, a global polling firm. And they're here today to talk about some research they've conducted into one of America's two major political parties, in this case, the Republican Party. Uh, the title of their uh, findings is The Future of the Republican Party 2022, 2024, and Beyond. Guys, good to see you today. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. So let's talk about the findings. Um, and um, first of all, well done. Uh, very easy to read and uh, very informative, quite interesting. Uh, you broke this down into three parts. Uh, and again, all of this you can find at the hoover.org website. Uh, first thing you talked about was changes uh, over time to Republicans. And you went back to the Reagan era in the 1980s moving forward. Uh, I leave it to either of you to kind of quickly encapsulate what you found in terms of changes over time to the Republicans. I can give that a try and let Doug correct me. Okay. Oh, so it started It started out, uh, uh, Democrats had, since the New Deal and Roosevelt had a advantage in party identification, and the proof of that was they controlled Congress for 60 out of 64 years and so on. Uh, as during the Reagan era, particularly by 83, 84, that uh, what happened was the number of uh, Democrats came down, the number of Republicans came up, and the number of independents uh, what, uh, such that there was about parity, roughly parity uh, between the three. And the mechanism that drove it was uh, sorting. And what that meant was, so if you went into the 1980 election, about uh, 35, 40% of people who were self-professed conservatives mm-hmm. uh, were Democrats. Uh, right. What happened is Democrats, uh, conservative uh, Democrats moved into the Republican Party and the liberal elements of the Republican Party moved into the Democratic Party. So the first great change was this sorting. And mm-hmm. the second one was uh, during the Trump era, you had a switch where among white voters, those without a college degree moved into the Republican Party and uh, well-educated, college-educated people moved into uh, the Democratic Party. And then I guess the final thing on that is we did uh, show there was a rise in the number of people who said they were very conservative or very liberal, as opposed to the sort of normal liberal conservative divisions. Right. Doug, I think the phrase is ideological sorting, right? Yes, that's the long-term effect. The, the short-term one, which Dave mentioned, is the cultural split. Um, so, uh, you know, Democrats have long held an advantage among minorities, but uh, their base was among white uh, working class voters who used to be moderate or even somewhat liberal. And that's the group that switched. And that's the non-sorting part of the story. 
Okay. I would say, I would add one uh, thing to that that uh, Doug did. He has a very nice chart on ideology by generations, independent mm -hmm. of of their party affiliation. So he does it for the silent generation, baby boomers, and so on. And uh, that data is uh, very interesting because it shows the, uh, I guess, Generation Z, the present one, is by far the most liberal of uh, any of those groups. As you might expect, the older people are the more conservative they are, but uh, Generation Z does stand out uh, in our data. We do not, by the way, draw the false conclusion that means that because this generation is liberal, they'll always be liberal and they'll always vote Democrat. Yeah, among every generation, you can see that over time, they start relatively liberal and get more conservative as they age. Um, but uh, Gen, Z, Gen Z is starting at a higher level of liberalism than um, uh, previous generations. Um, Why do you think that is, Doug? I don't know, Bill. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you hear various culprits. I mean, for example, no, academia, academia is always singled out as a culprit here that kids yeah. go to high school and college and they get more of a liberal education. They do a conservative education. Yeah, so more people are going to college. College uh, does have some tendency to make people right. uh, more left wing, though a lot of it is selection that um, kids that go to college are uh, more liberal to start with. But the increase in the amount of college going hasn't isn't enough to explain the phenomena. Okay, so the second area you guys got into um, was uh, self-identified Republicans and how they differ from other segments of the electorate. Um, what stood out to me here was the question of increase versus decrease, and that um, at almost all times decrease was the winning message with conservative Republicans. Yeah, that's the traditional Republican position, uh, which is cut spending, cut taxes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the interesting part is uh, to the, that piece has persisted that Republicans in Congress um, still are completely united on that, but they've managed to pick up support among white working class voters who um, are less, uh, in favor of reductions in government spendings and reductions in taxes. Right. But Dave, I think there was one crack in that, and that was Social Security. And and I think you found Republicans are a little more reluctant to go after Social Security than they would other government programs. Am I, am I correct in that? That's correct. But I, I would add to what Doug said, the fact that you brought in a number of blue-collar, white, non-college graduates uh, has meant that Republicans are more likely now than they were in the past to favor uh, increasing taxes on people over 250,000. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has had some implications. If you look at uh, Senate race in uh, Florida, you, you get Rubio proposing policies that you would not have had uh, proposed some time ago. So I, I agree in general with Doug, but there is there is some effect. And 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 Trump, the Trump administration, uh, did uh, pass tax cuts, but it also did not. Uh, it spent a lot of money. Yeah, the Paul Ryan agenda of uh, yeah. reforming Medicare and Social Security is uh, something that Trump didn't pursue at all and is less popular than it used to be among Republicans. 
That's exactly the way. That's I wish I would have said that. That's the way to say it. Yeah, this to me has always been a really interesting disconnect between rank and file Republicans and Republican leadership, and that rank and file Republicans always want spending to be tackled and they want entitlement reform. But tell me the last Republican president who went after spending earnestly and also went after entitlement reform uh, earnestly. Uh, George W. Bush did not cut spending. He did go after entitlements. At least he talked about some entitlement reform um, in his second term when he was already a political lame duck, so not exactly a position of power. Uh, we go back to Ronald Reagan. I looked up some of Ronald Reagan's budget numbers. His 1982 budget, the first one that he uh, authored, $745 billion. The 1989 federal budget, the last one he would have written before he left office, $1.14 trillion. So again, this is not fiscal conservatism now, is it? But yeah, well, those numbers seem kind of quaint these days. Well, when you're talking about uh, something that's you know two, three times bigger in terms of build back better, and we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, but no, here is Ronald Reagan on every conservative's Mount Rushmore, and yet he is not, you know, he is he is not doing what the what the faithful want. <laughs> Yeah, so Reagan uh, did take a run at Social Security, and they, right. uh, um, but at the time, they realized that uh, the first attempt to um, really cut the size of the program uh, went nowhere, um, mm -hmm. and the Social Security reform under Reagan was largely uh, shoring up the financing rather than uh, restricting the benefits. Exactly right, and it was bipartisan. Right. I remember Bill as a 1986 Bill Bradley and a whole bunch of Democrats worked on it with Republicans. Uh, it's something we don't see anymore, uh, but it was a very bipartisan uh, fix of the problems of Social Security. Yeah, no in 2005, the Bush administration talked about privatizing Social Security, but that lasted about 30 seconds before. Yeah. Uh, as soon as they got it, as soon as they got it, it came back, said, we don't want to lose the next election. This isn't going to happen. Well, yeah, but that and that's my point. They look, they did it coming off a reelection where, you know, you're already kind of thinking about the next president and he did put it out there, but there was no sustained effort. He didn't go around the country, you know, campaigning for it, stumping or anything like that. It just it was kind of tossed out there and then quickly abandoned. So, yeah. They, yeah. they they didn't even uh, they didn't even send it down the bill. It was just a letter, uh, a little four or five page letter. As Bill points out, it came back. It came back pretty quickly that oh, we're not going to have any legislation. Yeah, so, I, I do think you know. So polarization is the big feature of modern American politics. Polarization between the parties, um, right. but uh, Social Security and Medicare. Uh, are the one issue in which the parties have largely come together um, that uh, Republicans don't want to get rid of it and uh, uh, Democrats, uh, you know, want to control the growth of the spending on it. Right. So let's talk about issues and let's talk about messaging, because one thing which you uh, you did in these findings was you talked about what the Republican advantages and disadvantage are vis-a-vis -vis trying to draw in independent voters and producing a winning coalition. So what does the Republican Party have going for it right now? And where do you see the Republican Party struggling? I, I would guess that the two things that has going for it right now would be crime. Uh, and then secondly, perhaps it's getting better on education, which we saw in the Virginia gubernatorial election. I, on the our our results uh, showed on stuff like taxing and spending uh, that the, the Democrats had somewhat of an advantage over Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, and then Republicans had advantage on uh, the police and the sorts of issues uh, you brought up, right. uh, education, uh, Black Lives Matter, sixteen uh, nineteen project, mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. But I think the one thing that uh, we did that was right in the um, 
report was if the Democrats are now a party of the left with some moderates and the Republicans are the party of the right with few moderates, that means that the voters who decide the election are going to be in the middle of the two of them. So we were pretty careful to say that uh, the Republican Party uh, is, because of that situation, they're, they're not out of it on issues. If the Democrats push too far left, it's a Republican advantage, whereas the same thing if the Republicans push too far right, it's a Democratic advantage. So we did not, uh, we, we spelled those out, but uh, I thought we were pretty careful on making sure that uh, the readers understand that uh, it's contextual in terms of who the candidates are and how far the parties are pushing agenda to the left or to the right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are people out there making the argument that uh, the middle, the swing voters are not ideological and uh, you can pursue policies on the left or right without losing them. And uh, I think our evidence is uh, the opposite. There are some issues that are better for Republicans, like crime and the police. Um, there are some issues that are uh, better for the Democrats. Uh, but uh, the swing voters and independents are, on, are between the two parties on all of these things. And the parties are kidding themselves if they think they can play to their base and uh, appeal to the swing voters. Let's build on that. I don't, I don't know if you saw the president's uh, remarks the other day, but he was uh, speaking in Washington to a group of Democrats. It might have been the DNC. I, I forget which group exactly. Uh, Speaker Pelosi was there, too. And it basically was a pep talk. It was uh, Biden saying we're going to do very well in 2022. Just you watch and see. But he did say something which kind of I thought was smart politics. And what he said was that, you know, the Republicans are running against us. But ask yourself, what are Republicans running on? What do they stand for? Uh, I suspect this will be a continuing theme in 2022 to try to sort of scare off independent voters saying, well, great, give them the keys of the car and see where they drive you. But looking at your findings, though, what makes sense for Republicans in terms of themes in 2022? Well, they have the advantage of not being Democrats in that case. So one thing that happens is these elections, uh, Biden, now we don't have this in this survey, but because of uh, Doug's YouGov Economist survey, we do know that uh, Biden's uh, fallen way down in terms of uh, support for him as uh, president, mm -hmm. uh, support for his policies has uh, declined somewhat, and his uh, faith in his leadership has sort of really fallen down in the 40s. He's got Trump-like numbers on uh, confidence now. Right. Yeah, so um, Republicans uh, don't need to have uh, to run on anything in a midterm because midterms tend to be referenda on the incumbent government. Mm -hmm. And right now, uh, with Biden's overall popularity at about 41%, he's in the range where Trump was in 2018 when Republicans took a shellacking in the House, um, though managed to actually gain seats in the Senate. Uh, the interesting thing is uh, what Biden does well on and what he does poorly on. Um, so uh, Biden scores best actually on COVID. Uh, he's at about 45% on COVID. That's not where he probably needs to be on that, but that's better than a whole bunch of other issues. Um, so for example, if you ask, uh, do you approve of Biden on foreign policy? Um, this was supposed to be an area where they would come in and clean up on some right. of the chaos and Trump's foreign policy. In fact, they're doing terribly. 36% uh, approval on foreign policy, 45% disapproval. 
um, on um, the economy, um, you know, traditionally the most important issue in midterm elections is how the economy is doing. Uh, and, you know, the macroeconomic numbers aren't bad, but uh, Biden's rating on the economy um, is only 39% uh, approval. Um, unless those numbers appro- uh, improve, uh, Republicans don't need to do much of anything other than show up in the midterm. Right. You mentioned that. 40, you mentioned that forty-five percent COVID number, Doug. Is that underwater, or is there, uh, or is it a 45-45-10 split, or how does that play out? It's forty-five, forty-five, ten. Okay. And you so would I, go ahead. Sorry. You would expect if you came in and did something competent. No one is for COVID, so. Right. <laughs> you know, a, a competent president handling this should be at 55, 60 plus percent. Um, now they've, you know, the Omicron wave and the Delta waves are not things they could really control. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's not a level of popularity you'd like on an issue in which there's only one side. Dave, I think we just discovered that Doug does not own pharmaceutical stock. No, he does not. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. You're, you're about to say something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of the I, I think one of the things in terms of these voters who decide elections that is important. We had two uh, Hoover overseers on the committee, and one of them, Susan McCall, pressed me when I sent her an original draft of this. Uh, pressed me on why are the Republicans so competitive given given uh, the Trump phenomenon, and so we have a section in here on uh, on how the states are, how the they Republicans have an electoral college advantage right. and a small state advantage. And that makes them more competitive because the, these elections are going to be decided in five or six states. And the number of voters in those states uh, that are swingable uh, gets smaller and smaller. So uh, who gets to decide elections in America is a much narrower range than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, since you brought up the name Trump, let's get into it because you also discussed uh, Donald Trump's role with the Republican Party. Uh, what came to mind to me, gentlemen, is the uh, the movie The King's Speech um, and a scene where uh, the character, play, the fellow playing the Winston Churchill character, uh, goes up to the future Queen of England and asks about, inquires about Wallace Simpson, who is uh, the paramour of the current king. And here's the question he asked: What is her hold on him? which is meant in a very sexual context, but this is the applicable question to Donald Trump. What is his hold on the Republican Party? You mean you're asking the philosophical question about... Uh, no, I want, I want to tie this into your findings. Why does Donald Trump have this hold on the Republican Party? And it's actually, actually better yet, let's talk about how strong is the hold on the Republican Party. So let's get into, let's get into for example, his transferability, how likely, unlikely voters are to vote for him, uh, how much it matters, uh, a Trump endorsement and so forth. Well, for, for the report, we, we thought mm-hmm. probably the most crucial thing for 22 and 24 electoral cycle Right. is uh, what effect Donald Trump has. And so uh, we looked at the number, uh, we talked about the number of people who, in the party who wanted him to run for president. Mm-hmm. Now there's a substantial proportion that uh, didn't want him to run, but it's over 50% who do want him to run again. That's mm-hmm. a pretty commanding, if you're sitting out there and you're another Republican, uh, Haley or somebody who might think about running, you're, 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 you got to wait to see what uh, the, what he, what former president Trump does. Right. And uh, you don't want to alienate him because in case he says he's not going to run uh, the endorsement wouldn't hurt. So that that's one thing. And the other thing we asked about was what effect will Donald Trump have on 
nominees, who gets the nomination. He's uh, gone after the 10 people who voted for his impeachment and so on. Right. And, and two things could happen, right? He could be very successful in getting uh, his st stamp on the nominees and they could lose or they could get the nomination uh, or not get the nomination. Uh, but so there's a range of possibilities that uh, that we simply don't know. The little bit of data we have, uh, the first bit was the Texas case where he backed the candidate. He backed the candidate who lost. Right. But uh, so so that that's one possibility. But there's uh, way many others floating out. The other thing he probably just did was he got the got a Republican governor of Massachusetts to say he's not going to run again because he was going to have a Trump. Uh, he was going to have a Trump. Right. Uh, opponent. And as far as I can tell, what that means is the Republicans are going to be uh, one less uh, governorship. Right. You know, Doug, inside the findings, I believe, uh, when it comes to the question of Trump endorsing a candidate, if I have the numbers correct here, 45% of your respondents said they're more likely to support a Trump endorsed candidate. 44% said no effect and only 10% said they're likely to oppose a Trump endorsed candidate, which kind of begs the question of Tea Party, a repeat or not. Um, that just sounds like this will play differently from state to state. Well, so far, uh, the number of true Trumpers in the Republican Party, which is probably on the order of 60 to 70 percent, right, means that opposing Trump is a loser for nearly everywhere. The, uh, the never Trump phenomenon is a tiny fraction of Republicans. Um, so the result is if you want to win a Republican nomination, that's really a choice between a little pro-Trump and really pro-Trump. Um, if you're uh, opposed to Trump, uh, most places, I think that's going to um, spell your demise in a Republican primary. Uh, the best test of this will be Liz Cheney, um, who you know clearly can't get a majority in a Republican primary. I suppose there's a... Uh, a path in by in a multi-candidate race to win with a plurality, but I still think that's pretty unlikely. Um, you you can see this in the Virginia in the Virginia governor's race, right, uh, Bill? As you pointed out before, uh, he ran a campaign where he did not uh, fully he did not endorse the Trump had won the 2020 presidential election. Right. He, he kept on the right side of the policy issues where uh, Trump was in its favor. He played on the education issue where former governor made a, uh, made a mistake. But, but the bottom line is uh, that's the kind of campaign uh, that was successful. And then you have to ask yourself the question uh, to which I don't have any idea what the answer is. Will Donald Trump uh, behave that way throughout the primary season? If he does, uh, then they're probably going to be uh, more successes than failures. But uh, I, I, I don't. I'm not. I have no way, or I don't think anybody has a way of predicting whether he's going to behave that way throughout the entire primary season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, this is the difference between what's good general election strategy and what's good primary strategy, and how you reconcile the two. So, good exactly. primary strategy is to sign up for Trump. Uh, lock, stock, and barrel, including uh, the election was stolen, um, and the big issue is uh, is that. Uh, that's a terrible general election strategy for Republicans. Uh, and so what uh, Glenn Youngkin was able to do in Virginia was to navigate it, to be Trumpy enough so they didn't 
uh, get Trump to come into Virginia and oppose him, um, but not so Trumpy that he wasn't viable in the general election. And in that case, uh, the Democrats, Terry McAuliffe's uh, attempt to paint Youngkin as another Trump failed um, badly there. Um, the one that's interesting at this point is Georgia. So in the Georgia governor's race, mm -hmm. uh, the Republican incumbent, uh, Brian Kemp, uh, has drawn Trump's ire and Trump is coming from him. Um, uh, full bore. Uh, so he's endorsed David Perdue, who lost the uh, Senate race. Um, so there's going to be a bloody uh, primary uh, among Republicans there. Um, if uh, Perdue wins, he's going to be the Trump candidate um, and is going to have a tough time with uh, moderates and suburban voters. Um, if Kemp wins, you know, he's probably pretty well positioned. Um, but uh, I suspect he can't win a Republican primary if it's a one-on-one -on -one race. Um, the and the traditional literature in political science suggests that highly divisive primaries uh, are not good in the general election because there's right. a certain fraction varies by election, but a certain fraction of your own party who are upset and don't turn out. Bill, yeah. Bill Bradley, Al Gore was an example in the Democratic Party of that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Georgia, Doug, because this does get to the question of, of what I'd call the Trump disconnect. You guys polled, surveyed Republicans, and here's what you found on Trump, that he generally got high marks in most policy areas. I think COVID was one area that he lagged uh, with Republicans. And then the Republicans you surveyed uh, also gave him very high marks on personal attributes, honesty, authenticity. Uh, but here's the disconnect that I don't get, fellas. Maybe you can better explain it to me. Uh, you go back to a state like Georgia, Republican in Georgia right now, and you're looking at two Democratic senators, uh, at least one, maybe both of whom are there because why? Because Donald Trump got involved in the runoff elections and discouraged Republicans to come out to vote. And that cost the Republicans one or two seats in the Senate. And it's a very different game in Washington right now if it's a 51-49 GOP Senate. So I don't understand why voters, why the Republicans don't take the extra step of looking at Trump. And while they while they give these high marks on his attributes, they don't take a step further and say, well, wait a second. It's not just the tweeting that we don't like. It's also him having these temper tantrums and causing problems for the party. Well, I think I don't... Go, go ahead, Doug. Well, I don't think primary voters are as strategic uh, yeah. and care as much about electing, uh, choosing candidates they're going to win. Right. Uh, they choose candidates that appeal to them. Uh, having said that, the problem for Democrats in Georgia is uh, if they run 10 points behind uh, 2020, which is what happened to Democrats in Virginia, either of the Republican candidates um, can win the general election. Uh, the difference between that and the runoff in January of 2021 is uh, control of the Senate was uh, 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 at stake there. And it was a repeat of the 2020 uh, general election with uh, very high turnout. Uh, I think you know the chances for Republicans in Georgia are quite a bit better in 2022. Let's and the other the other thing we a point we make in the uh, paper is is that Trump is a turnout machine. Mm -hmm. He's a turnout machine for his own party, but he's also a turnout machine machine for the Democrats. 
So uh, the way Doug described, and you described Yunkin played it in Virginia was just about the right way. He didn't lose any votes and uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't, uh, he managed the campaign. So he didn't get painted into a corner by the independents and swing voters that he was, uh, that he was the next version of Trump. So uh, how, how often that can happen uh, we're, we're going to check, but we're, we're going to be pulling that Georgia case, uh, I think, pretty carefully uh, to find out exactly what effect Trump does have and what effect what effect his being involved in the primary has on the general and voter turnout. Yeah, my guess is if if Trump decided to play golf for uh, the next year, uh, that would help Republicans enormously in the midterm. So you're now to my theory of the best thing the Democrats could do to improve their chances in 2022 is to go to whoever's replacing Jack Dorsey at Twitter and say, please put that man back on Twitter right now (laughs) and the ban, because that's I think that's been one of the best things to have to Republicans in 2021. He is not on social media every day, uh, distracting and driving news. Well, the comment you made earlier, Bill, about what, when you were asked about the primary, why don't people see that effect he has? Yeah. You talk to Republican politicians, people who are in uh, elected office, they're saying the sort of thing that you're, that they're saying that they're making exactly those kinds of comments, but the voters, as Doug pointed out, uh, they're different. But in the Republican Party itself, when you talk to uh, Republican operatives, they, Republican pollsters, they see the problem just the way you described it. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit about 2024 and your findings. Here's what you um, came up with. You asked Republicans about Trump and the question of running for the presidency again, and 53% want him to run again. Only 20% do not want him to run again. 27% are ambivalent. They don't have an opinion. So what does that tell me? Um, You've got a problem. If it's a crowded field running uh, against Trump and that he's going to own half of the vote to begin with, you're going to be all competing for 47% of the pie. You're going to have to find a way to chip away at his 50% plus. But that also tells me that if Donald Trump is not running, then 80% of that vote is up for grabs. That would be the 53% of his and the 27% that doesn't have a horse right now. Agreed. Yeah, I think it's Trump's nomination if he wants it, which I think he does. But if he doesn't, then it would be wide open to a bunch of candidates. Okay, so going back to your data and where Republicans like Trump and don't like Trump, what what do you go after? I think there's only one 2024 candidate right now who's making it personal, and that's Chris Christie. And that seems to be personality driven more than anything else. I don't think an anti-Trump candidate and Christie sort of sometimes is anti-Trump and sometimes is pro-Trump would have much choice. Mm -hmm. You're going to need somebody. If Trump doesn't run, it's still Trump's endorsement is going to hurt anybody who, excuse me, is going to help uh, any Republican candidate and some candidate that he is really opposed to. And um, I think it's going to do badly. Uh, we'll see in the Georgia. The, um, I think the Georgia governor's race is uh, a great example. Is the, is the, will the Trump uh, backing Purdue mean that uh, camp is out? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see. Okay. Uh, I'd like to give you guys a little story that happened the other day uh, in Kentucky, Doug River State, of all places. And on Wednesday, the President of the United States went to Kentucky. 
Why? He wanted to see the devastation from the uh, from the storm. Uh, he was accompanied on the trip uh, by James Comer, who is the uh, Republican congressman from the first congressional district in uh, Kentucky. Um, interesting that he went along because uh, Mr. Comer is also the top Republican on the House Committee of Oversight and Reform, uh, which means that when you're the party in power, you're basically the president's chief tormentor. Uh, you might remember Daryl Issa from California playing that role during the Obama presidency. Uh, Comer's congressional district gentlemen includes uh, two towns called Mayfield and Dawson Springs. I don't know if you know those or not, Doug, if you've been through them or not. Um, the towns the president visited uh, to see the tornado damage firsthand. Uh, during the speech, uh, Biden briefly thanked the congressman and jokingly thanked him for giving me, quote, passport into his district. And why do you call it a passport? Just go back and look at the results of 2020. Uh, Congressman Comer got 75% of the vote. Joe Biden got 25.5% of the vote in that district. Uh, trivia question. The last Democratic presidential candidate to carry Kentucky, Doug Rivers, would be? Jimmy Carter. Bill nope. Clinton. Bill Clinton. Oh. Uh, which, which year? Uh, would have to be uh, the first time, 1992. He actually carried it in 96 as well, but only by one point, kind of the kind of the skin of his teeth, if you will. Uh, but here's what's interesting as I dug uh, went deep, deeper into this, Doug. Um, if you go into 1996, Bill Clinton actually carries eastern and western Kentucky coal counties, and he carries them by about a three to one margin. Yes. And if you go deeper into the Kentucky vote in 1992, Doug, you find that Clinton does very well with whites without college education voters as well. Um, you look at Kentucky back then, and it was a very strong state in terms of Democratic registration. Uh, I just looked up the uh, Kentucky voter registration uh, numbers this morning, Doug. About 3.2 million registered voters in the bluegrass state. Democrats have a uh, registration lead right now of less than 46,000 votes. That suggests that in the near future, Republicans will surpass them. Conversely, let's look at California for a second. Um, the last time a Republican won statewide would be Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2006. Uh, back then, the uh, advantage in voter registration was about 15 points for Democrats. Today, where every Democrat in Cal every statewide office in California is occupied by Democrats, uh, the Democrats have an edge in voter registration of 46.5% to 24%, almost a two-to-one margin. That low. Yeah, that low. So this is a very long roundabout way of asking. When we look at a state like Kentucky, Doug, um, are Republicans winning it or Democrats giving it away? Kentucky, uh, you know, was one of the uh, states that for a long time, Republicans uh, were competitive. Um, so in the uh, 1960s and on, they would win some Senate and some governors, uh, uh, elections, even though it was uh, a democratic legislature. Uh, that flipped, uh, I don't know, 20 some years ago. Um, and uh, the state is now about as red as they come. There's one congressional district that- Governor's a Democrat. Uh, that's because the previous Republican candidate was uh, incumbent, was highly unpopular. Um, it is the case in these states where they become reliably red or blue, you can get governors of the other party, um, partly because re uh, governors don't have that much unilateral power um, when faced with a legislature controlled by the other party, and partially by the fact that things that uh, governors do aren't actually um, that ideological. Um, 
But uh, the thing that struck me most about the Biden visit was how normal it was. Uh, 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 a president comes to a state um, uh, in, the, in a disaster and everyone of both parties uh, gets together and is opposed to the disaster and not making it into a uh, uh, political uh, debate. Right. Um, that used to be add, normal. I want to add, so uh, Doug, I thought Doug underemphasized the, the, the role of the governors and he said they were non-ideological. But what, what that means to me is that the Democratic Party has this uh, huge uh, splice between the liberal wing and the very liberal wing and moderates. You see it uh, unfolding day in, day out in the Senate with Manchin and Cinema. But within the states, the reason the governors uh, do reasonably well is because they don't, they don't have to take uh, the positions of the Democratic Party. The governor of Kentucky is not uh, running when he's running. He's, he's not running on the basis of defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. So right. I think governors, uh, and, and it's the same thing uh, for Republican governors in states in Democratic states like Massachusetts, Hogan and Maryland and uh, governor in Massachusetts. Uh, the reason is they're not so ideological so they can be moderate and act competent. And that's a little, uh, and so uh, the ideology matters a great deal in that case. They can appeal to moderate voters in Kentucky. They can appeal to moderate voters in uh, other Republican states and vice versa for Democrats. The, Kentucky used to be populated by moderate conservative Democrats. And those, those people have turned into Republicans at the elite level and the registration of voters at large is just catching up to that. Same thing has happened in West Virginia. Um, and there you had a case of where the governor, um, Jim Justice, was a Democrat and he switched to uh, being a Republican. Um, Joe Manchin is, you know, the last holdout. Of right. But prior to that, they, West Virginia had a Democrat, they had Byrd, mm -hmm. who yep. brought some, and then after that, Rockefeller. Yeah, uh, and the, West Virginia had been a liberal yeah. democratic state right. from the Civil War. Well, see, I'm, that's, I'm not, I'm, I don't think they are, my view is they're not so liberal. They, uh, they, uh, the reason well, they were why people liberals. like that win is because they can appeal to the, to the centrist or moderate voters. Right. But, you know, this is, this is one thing to watch for in 2022 in terms of these races. Look at Texas, for example, who is running against uh, Governor Abbott in Texas right now. It's Beto O'Rourke. Um, Beto O'Rourke is hardly anything but a, you know, longtime serving Democratic politician, a, a Wendell Ford, if you will, from Kentucky, Doug, uh, someone who's been worked his way up the ladder and kind of, you know, embodies kind of a centrist uh, Democrat from the South. That's not Beto O'Rourke. We look at Georgia. Stacey Abrams is running there. But then we flip it. We look at California. I have no idea who's going to challenge Gavin Newsom in California in 2022. <laughs> it could be Larry Elder again, but odds are it's going to be a gadfly. <laughs> so, yeah. so you just you have these races where you don't have people, it seems, kind of really, A, rooted in their states, but B, also kind of running on an agenda, which would reflect the kind of balance to win and, you know, what for your party is a hostile environment. Yeah, yeah, the, idea um, that, yeah the idea that Beto O'Rourke is going to do after, after running for president, and pushing those far left policies that he did, the idea that uh, he's going to do well in the Texas gubernatorial races, I think, just insane. There's no, well, no way. 
Well, you know, in entertainment, they call it the uh, EGOT, and that's the idea that you're truly an entertainer, a super superstar when you've won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. And uh, if O'Rourke loses the governor's race, which I imagine he will, then he will have lost a Senate race. Uh, he would have flopped as a presidential candidate and then lost a gubernatorial candidate uh, within, what, the course of, what, four years? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite as negative as uh, Dave is on his chances, but I think they're certainly not great. Um it is, but your general point of why don't Republicans in California um, nominate uh, moderates, you know, a Tom Campbell or someone like that, and um, and why don't uh, Democrats in Texas find someone who's pretty close to the center? Uh, and you know what what happens is the sorting within the party so that they're ideologically homogeneous means. Right that the primary voters uh, pick candidates that appeal to them, not candidates that appeal to uh, swing voters in a general election. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I don't know if you guys caught it the other day, but Tom Etzel wrote a very long piece in the New York Times on polarization, the headline of which was, has polarization reached a point of no return? Very good piece to read because he talked to a lot of political scientists. He didn't just conjecture. He talked to people who actually, you know, thought about this topic. But then I found out that guess what? Dave Brady and Doug Rivers have also been uh, down this avenue. And I'm looking at a real clear politics uh, piece that ran uh, February 1st of 2021. This would be just a few days after um, Joe Biden took office. And the headline is Hoover Poll Amid Our Divides Is Unity Attainable? So here we are, fellas. It's uh, the middle of December, long past February 2021. If you were to update that piece, what would you have to say? It, it has been updated. We'll have, that. <laughs> we'll have that in a couple of weeks, hopefully. I would say, I would say it has, uh, it's about where it was. I, without, that's yeah. not having actually looked at the data. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, um, I don't. No, there hasn't been any real shift. What we saw in 2021 was... Uh, about the same as what we saw in, through the Trump administration. Um, I am reluctant when people say beyond the point of no return, nothing is forever and right. this won't be forever either. And, uh, and, and political scientists, the political scientists are quite, so the question is, uh, if you mean bipolar, uh, bipolar, a lot of countries are uh, have, uh, polarized politics. Right. Uh, uh, and so you have situations in Britain where it's uh, labor versus uh, the Tories, etc. And the parties always vote all in the House, in the British House of Commons. The all the uh, labor members vote one way, and all of the uh, all of the conservative members vote the other way. So polarization per se is not that unusual in uh, across uh, Western democracies. The real question is in the United States, uh, given the way our system set up without not a multi-party system. So that one quick example, so you think of the German system, mm -hmm. it's uh, smaller parties like the Free Democratic Party that can move back and forth and determine who's going to be the who's going to be the who's going to be the prime minister in the coalition. We don't have that, so we we tend to polarization has consequences in our system that it doesn't have elsewhere. But polarization per se, Doug's absolutely right. It's uh, we've had it before, and uh, it will it will at some point pass on. 
Yeah, people are always going to have different opinions on things. I'm looking right now at some of the economic uh, numbers that you guys have in that. For example, mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats are miles apart on issues like favoring rent control, opposing a carbon tax, minimum wage, uh, guaranteed income, socialism better than capitalism, and so on and so forth. But are we really getting at when we talk about polarization? Really, it's the idea of dysfunction, I think, is what we're getting at, isn't it? You can have people who believe different things, but getting back to what you mentioned about Social Security in the 1980s, uh, the challenge is to get the two parties to come together and actually do things. And uh, this would seem like a good time to talk about what we learned about politics in 2021. And isn't that part of the story here, Doug, that just, you know, the two sides are just, even though there was an election and a change of power in Washington and a shift in Congress, the two sides are just still apart and will not come together. Yeah, so the American system doesn't work terribly well with polarization because right. um, there are lots of things that a, a minority can block, whereas in a parliamentary system, uh, it's somewhat surprising that things don't swing around more as there's a, a change in power. Um, but you know what we've learned is um, in the Senate, if, uh, if you want to pursue a blocking strategy, which is what McConnell has done, there isn't a lot you can do about it. Um, it's extremely hard to uh, get around that. Um, and, you know, we've had various institutional changes like the elimination of the filibuster for um, judicial nominations, for, um, uh, for budgets. Um, we'll probably see some weakening of some additional uh, exemptions, such as the most recent one on... Uh, the debt limit. But, uh, you know, the result is it'd be quite a different system if it were just a simple majority is what would be required to uh, pass legislation. Mm -hmm. on, the other hand, on the other hand, there was the, uh, uh, they passed the joint infrastructure bill with votes mm -hmm. in the Senate and the House without which it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, what McConnell did to allow the Democrats to increase the debt ceiling those are, in fact, areas of cooperation where I think in both cases, uh, the decision was made for the perceived greater, in my view, the, the, the greater good. Uh, so it's not, what it, it's not what it used to be by a long way, so I don't disagree with Doug, but uh, I was uh, a little encouraged by those two, the two things I mentioned. Sure. And, but what you're not seeing is... Uh, so a lot of simple deal making of, you know, here's some places where uh, one party is at this position, the other party's at the other, let's find a place in between that uh, we can agree on. Um, and people who expect, you know, the president to stamp his fingers and make a deal, I think, um, aren't appreciating the, um, the gap between the party is such that sometimes uh, having nothing happen is better for the opposition party than um, anything, even though uh, it could easily command a majority. Yeah. And Dave, explain how much of this is, uh, uh, you know, problems with, with the institutional structures right now versus the particular hand in Washington. Uh, and by the latter, I mean, you have a president who uh, is approaching age of 80. He 
may run again. His press secretary says he's going to run again, but I think if you're a betting man, you would bet he would not run again. Um, he does not have a particularly vigorous presidency in terms of going out and stumping really hard around the country for things like Build Back Better, which I think is part of the problem here. Um, but then you look at the hand that the Democrats have been dealt in Congress, where Nancy Pelosi has, I think, 221 or 222 votes, um, meaning she just doesn't have any margin for error. And then it's a 50-50 Senate. But Really, that's that's kind of an illusion because they're the two senators, Cinema and Manchin, who at all times have to be coaxed along. Um, so how much of this is the change in the institutions in Washington and politics versus just this particular lineup that we have in 2021? I think the, we've had this uh, system in the America. We've had the American system for quite some time. Right. And beginning with uh, Reagan, you began to get the sorting. So by the 90s, you had, uh, by, uh, the last time you got kind of an inside out coalition was the uh, Bush, H.W.'s uh, 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 tax bill in uh, the compromise tax bill where he had says, I'll raise taxes. That was uh, inside out. I mean, start of the center. So you start out the moderates and they lost the uh, Ron Dellums of the left and the Democratic Party and they lost the right in the Republican Party. You, 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 you do not have you do not have that anymore. So we have a problem with uh, the Democrats at 50 50 and very mm -hmm. narrow margins. Very. And then Biden decides to go for a um, Franklin Roosevelt type New Deal spending. And I think that put a tremendous amount of problem on it. And at no point did he crack down on the moderates. I'm not on the moderates, but at no point did he crack down on the progressives. So I think I would add to the closeness of the part uh, closest in the House and the closest in the Senate. I would add the following. I, I would add I would add the fact that the progressive caucus in the House now has over 100 members. And in the times when Doug and I were talking earlier about them making deals, the Progressive Caucus was nowhere near that strong. The Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party is at most 40. Right. So the dominant caucus in the uh, House of Representatives, uh, especially when the Democrats are in power, is the uh, Progressive Caucus. They've just never had that many members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, though the Virginia election was a wake-up call and the progressives lost any leverage they've got. Um, you know, th this morning uh, there was an interview with um, Joe Manchin where he wouldn't say what he would support, but he said that uh, he didn't think the bill should be the current two trillion; it should be one and three quarters trillion. Uh, that means that the most they're possibly going to get now is one and three quarters trillion, and arguing that that's too small uh, is going to be a waste of time. And I. Uh, that's the best they could possibly get. So that, that you add all these things up that we've talked about. So number one, what happened in Afghanistan? Oh, no, no problem in Afghanistan. It's a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, then the second thing happens is the Democrats can't, they got a majority and they got pushed the, all these policies. They can't get any agreement. They can't even pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, not because of the Republicans, but because there's internal fighting in the Democratic Party. Uh, the fact that uh, Biden hasn't stepped forward, has not been aggressive. All those things add up and, and uh, Biden's numbers show it. And the, as Doug says exactly, the Virginia election is a wake-up election in Mansion and Cinema. And by the way, there's other Democrats in situations like that. Hassan in North, uh, in uh, 
New Hampshire. She won by a very normal. And you saw John Tester of Montana. He voted against the face mask man uh, or the vaccine max man, man right. last week. And the reason is because there's a bunch of Democratic senators that come from states where you can't have the progressive caucus opinion. And they're there. And at this point, Manchin and Cinema are taking the brunt of the attack. But even if they weren't there, Tester is going to run in 2024 and he's got to worry about being reelected. So there's more Democrats on that side than you'd think. Yeah, if they if they had 51 or 52 votes, there would be a larger group of people playing the role of, of you know, that uh, Manchin and Cinema have been playing. It's uh, just they are not visible at this point. Are you suggesting that dreaded word in Washington, Doug Gang? <laughs> gang of two, a gang of four, a gang of six? Yes. Well, no one wants to take the heat, particularly right. from a progressive state or state that has, you know, reasonable numbers of progressive Democrats. The difference is in West Virginia, um, the progressive Democratic uh, base is quite small, mm-hmm. not non-existent, but small. Right. But, but if you, you know, think of the money that comes in, the money, the money comes from uh, the Democratic Party, the money comes, comes from the left. Uh, on the right from the Republican Party. But uh, look at uh, look at the race. Uh, we spent time on Kentucky and Doug State. Look at the amount of money that went into the Democratic campaign to beat Mitch McConnell. Uh, talk about a, a wasted expenditures. Uh, that, so so and the point being and the point there is that if you're a Democrat and you can have mansion and cinema can take the heat and you don't have to take the heat. That's great because then you don't you don't hack the uh, you don't hack a money base off and you don't hack the progressives in your state off. Right. Well, I mentioned gangs because historically, when we talk about gangs, especially in the Senate, the gangs are bipartisan. If you go back to the gang of six or whatever it was on immigration, bipartisan Republican Democrats. But this ties back into Republican study. Show me Republican senators, Republican members of Congress who come from blue states, come from states that Joe Biden carried, Barack Obama carried. Um, There once was a tradition of this. I was thinking about this watching the uh, funeral coverage of Bob Dole, where uh, they showed him giving his farewell speech in the Senate in 1996. You see the likes of Olympia Snow, a longtime Republican senator from Maine, and other blue state Republicans coming up to say goodbye to him. Those people are gone. And that that age in politics seems to be gone too. Yes. Agreed. So true. Okay. So we're about to turn the calendar to 2021. Let's make it the exit question for this podcast. As pollsters, political scientists, just tell me what you're looking at as we go into the new year. What, What topics do you want to pull and learn more about? Donald Trump and his effect on the Democratic Party, uh, the continue, the, what is the, uh, we'll, we'll learn over time more and more detail about what is the effect of the Democrats push uh, to spend all this amount of money and the effect of inflation and the relationship between the spending and inflation and how that's going to affect the Democratic Party's chances in 22 and 24. Right. So you plan to do a sister publication here. I'm uh, sorry to interrupt, Doug. And you're going to study Democrats and that's going to be part of the study. You want to see just how much of a, how much of a red flag uh, Trump is? Yeah, so we're going to try to understand uh, in uh, the next project of um, where the strengths and weaknesses are of Democrats and what's their best opportunity for uh, increasing their uh, support. Uh, I'd say my answer to the thing that's key to what happens in 2022 is uh, people's perception of the economy. 
uh, that um, right now people are really nervous about the economy. And if it turns uh, south, um, then uh, Democrats are in deep trouble. Um, but if, if Democrats can make the argument that they, uh, COVID's um, disappearing and the economy is improving, and uh, which actually the numbers are reasonably decent except uh, on inflation, which has never been that powerful an issue uh, compared to uh, how unemployment and uh, incomes are doing. And finally, Doug, since you and you go do polling around the world and you follow elections in other nations, is there anything coming up in 2022 before the American election that's worth keeping an eye on? For example, I'm thinking about France. <laughs> that one's way too complicated for us, but uh, we will be polling it. Uh, but uh, there they're having, uh, you know, lots of movement on the right, uh, uh, which is where the action is. That, um the Zamor, who's the uh, new right-wing sensation, has been uh, edging out uh, Marine Le Pen from, uh, it's sort of like a replacement for Donald Trump in a way, I suppose. Okay. Dave, anything else you're looking at on the world stage? Uh, no, I'm, we're, we have a group of political scientists that uh, Zoom together once a week. Uh, and uh, the great thing about that is that's the French system that is uh, problematic and something wrong. And the Italian system, the best thing about it, the most amazing is the Italians are very happy with Draghi. Uh, they appear to be moving ahead in regard to the economy. So uh, if you're a fan of Italy, this is a good time for this is a good time for the Italians. All the Italians in our group are quite happy. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I had a good time today. As always, I thank you for your participation. Uh, and we'll be seeing you until next year, I guess. So I hope you two have a very safe and uh, healthy uh, holiday season. Be careful if you go out there and travel. Please don't get sick. We want to have you back on the podcast a lot in 2022. And I'd like to thank all the listeners for following our podcast as well and their interest in the Hoover Institution. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media, but Doug Rivers is. His Twitter handle, his Twitter handle excuse me, is at Doug underscore Rivers, spelled as you might expect, D-O-U-G underscore R-I-V-E-R-S. And YouGov, his polling firm, um, they're on Twitter too, and it's at YouGov, Y-O-U-G-O-V. I mentioned our website beginning of the podcast, and that is hoover.org. Uh, while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which believes it brings the best work of Dave Brady and Doug Rivers to your inbox weekdays. Uh, you can also go on the Hoover website and find the report, The Future of the Republican Party 2022-2024 and Beyond, written by Dave Brady, Doug Rivers, and their colleague and fellow political scientist, Morris Fiorina. And uh, that's it for us for the Hoover Institution. This is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. On behalf of all of us here at Hoover, we hope you have a healthy and joyous holiday, and we will see you in 2022. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.